men, you may be seated. Uh, my wife is laughing at me for some unknown reason that she'll have to fill me in on later. Before we, wanna, before we get into today's sermon, I just want to say a big thank you. I want to say thank you to Terry for opening us up in our time of worship. And that also connects to another thank you I want to give. So uh, probably about three and a half years ago, I think I, I think I emailed Terry. I may have gone to her face to face. I said, Terry, like, you should do the call to worship. You, you know, you've got a great personality, you're very warm, you're very hospitable. And she's like, yeah, I don't really, I don't really want to do that. And I was like, all right, all right, I'm not going to force anybody to do it, right? And so uh, over the past several years, periodically I'd be like, Terry, and she'd be like, yeah, no, still no. <laughs> so the reason Terry came up today and did this wasn't because I asked her multiple times. It was because she saw Jackie do it. She saw Jackie do it said, if Jackie can get up there and put herself out there, I can do it, okay? So I want to say thank you to Jackie, but really just thank you to all of you in general. A lot of times I think, and, and this is not the sermon, this is just me saying stuff, I understand that I have a job here, and all of you understand that I have a job here. And that makes it true that when I say certain things, there's a tendency to say, Brent has a job to do, I don't have a job to do, so I'm not going to do whatever that thing is that either I don't want to do, or I'm uncomfortable doing, or whatever the case may be. But when you guys see each other doing things, that, that is where the church becomes dynamic. Because you can dismiss things I say pretty easily right? You can, you can say, well, it's his job. He's got to say that stuff. It's his job. He's got to do that stuff. When you see each other doing stuff, it really is a challenge. And Jackie is just an example of that. There's a lot of those good things happening in this church where you are inspiring each other to do things that, that are really a gift to each other. So I, wanna, I just want to say thank you to all of you for that. Uh, wasn't planning on doing that, but Let's go ahead and dive into today's sermon. I'm excited about this. Last May, we took a break from a sermon series we had been doing through the book of 1 Corinthians here at Byfield. And today, we return to that letter. For those of you that may have forgotten or maybe didn't attend Byfield Parish at the time, the book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, which Paul himself had planted on one of his missionary journeys. The city of Corinth had the reputation port cities so often have. It was economically vibrant, but renowned for its immorality. There were pagan temples all over the place, and the church in Corinth is struggling to function well in its native habitat. The people that made up the church approached life in sinful ways that didn't differ much from their neighbors. In some cases, the behavior of the people inside the church is even worse than those outside of it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a variety of issues the church 
in Corinth is dealing with. Today's verses reflect one of the problems happening in the church. So if you would please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Those verses will be projected on the screen behind me and can be found in your pew Bible on page 897. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know you are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. These verses have a lot more to say to us than initially meets the eye. They deal with a very specific situation concerning lawsuits. In doing so, Paul gives his readers a much better understanding of how the church is supposed to operate in all situations. The church in Corinth wasn't operating as it should. This is not unusual for churches. The church is not supposed to be one aspect of a person's life as they move through the world. It is supposed to be the community that de defines how every Christian lives out their life. Through the church, we are supposed to come to a greater understanding of what being in Christ means in all areas of life. For this to happen to the greatest extent possible, those that make up the church, all of us must behave like Christ to one another. We have a high calling as the body of Christ. Every person lives their life through a network of relationships. Actually, that's not quite right. We don't have a single network of relationships. It would be more correct to say we have networks of relationships. The different networks we are a part of often overlap or connect to one another. Think about the relational networks you inhabit. 
you were born into a family. That family might be tied to a certain town or geographic location, which is separate from your family, but related. You also might have a job or some sort of hobby through which you connect with others. Maybe it's the gym, creating art, playing golf, gardening, or something else. Hardly anyone moves through life as an independent operator. Those that don't have relational networks they inhabit are not better for it. Humans are social creatures. Social isolation is a, predict, is a significant predictor of depression and other mental health issues. Let's, let's play a quick game to prove the point. I'm gonna give you a word and you picture the type of person that word describes, okay? The word is loner, loner. I doubt any of you pictured a well-adjusted, happy person. No, you pictured a person that would probably make you uncomfortable if you got stuck on an elevator with them. A person's identity is formed by who they are in the relational networks they inhabit. The way others treat, the way others you are in a relationship with think of you and treat you strongly influences the person you become. Many of you have probably taken a personality tests at various points in your life, and these tests are supposed to show what type of person you are. One of the pushbacks to these tests is that what is actually being indicated by the test is not some immutable personal characteristic, but the roles the person taking the test is currently filling. While we have a baseline self, who we are at a given moment in time depends on our relational roles at that time. You see this with people when they have children. Their personality often shifts significantly because the relationship that defines them to the greatest extent has changed. The guy who was a party animal that nobody can, could rely on becomes an attentive father. Relationships affect the person we are and the person we become. Most of us have been in the uncomfortable situation of reverting back to a version of ourselves we thought we had grown out of when we re-enter a relational space from our past. An example of this some people look forward to and others dread happens at high school reunions. Who's been to a high school reunion? Okay. So you were this certain person in high school, maybe that was good, maybe it was bad, and then you leave high school and you become a different person. And what often happens when you go back to that reunion 
is you become the person again that you were in high school. So the woman that was you know, the prom queen in high school but has done nothing with her life in the intervening 20 years still walks back into the reunion like she owns the place. Whereas the other kid that was a nerd who has been widely successful in the intervening years finds herself reverting to the insecurities she felt as a 15-year-old girl. Today's passage is making the case that the defining relational network of a Christian's life should be the church. For the Corinthians, the church is but one additional relational network. It is not primary. A little bit of background information is helpful here. In ancient Corinth, lawsuits were used as a way of maintaining social status in the hierarchy of the day. Powerful people would sue those who were socially inferior to keep them down with little provocation. Those with resources could pay off judges if needed, although mostly they didn't really need to because it was assumed the person of inferior social standing was in the wrong. In the Corinthian church, this use of lawsuits to maintain social standing is happening between believers. There are, pre there are people bringing the relational networks that existed outside of the church in Corinth into the church. This is a significant problem. These worldly dynamics are rooted in greed, envy, envy jealousy, and pride. Who Christians are in the church should determine the way we operate in the world, not vice versa. In the church, we are saints. Children of God that have been uniquely formed for good works that we are to go out into the world and do. Who we are in the church is supposed to be who we are in Christ. That sounds like an extreme claim. But it's exactly what the Bible says. Our individual relationship with Christ makes us part of the living organism that exists in the world that is known as the church. If this seems way over the top to you, that is not surprising. The Corinthians weren't used to thinking of the church as the defining relationship of their lives, and we certainly are not either. We think of the church as an additional voluntary association with a limited impact on our lives. The world shouldn't determine how Christians operate in the church, but it often does. Today, we read eight verses. In those eight verses, Paul asks eight 
questions. Each of these questions is rhetorical. Paul is like a prosecuting attorney shredding a witness on the stand. Each question exemplifies the Corinthians' failure to operate as the church should. It is clear that the people receiving this letter would have had no excuses for themselves. When Paul isn't stating a question, he is making the Corinthians' failure clear with an accusation. After one barrage of questioning, he says, I say this to your shame. A little later, he adds, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. These verses conclude with him adding, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Underlying the charges Paul makes against the church in Corinth, was a neglect of what the church was supposed to be doing. According to the Cornell Law School, negligence is defined as a failure to behave with the level of care that someone of ordinary prudence would have exercised under the same circumstances. The behavior usually consists of actions, but can also consist of omissions when there is some duty to act. The church in Corinth is not acting with the ordinary prudence God expects. They have a responsibility to treat one another in a fashion the world would consider radical. Christians tend to focus a lot on sins of commission versus sins of omission. Sins of commission happen when we do something wrong, whether it be lie, cheat, steal, or any other wrong action. Sins of omission happen when we fail to do something we should. Failing to love or speak the truth when it is needed are sins of omission. While sins of omission may be less obvious, they are no less destructive. Many of us are pretty good at avoiding the things God commands us not to do. Where we struggle is doing the things God has commanded us to do. When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he was being asked to identify a sin of commission. He answered by pointing out that the whole law can be summed up with two commands. One, love God. Two, love your neighbor as yourself. If we're not doing either of these things, we are committing sins of omission. Both of these commands are incredibly broad. It is a lot easier to avoid behaviors God dislikes than it is to do what he desires of us. Churches and 
the individual Christians that make them up are called to more than we can really wrap our minds around. Because the presenting issue that Paul is dealing with in these verses is a lawsuit, he talks about judgment. He points out the ultimate judgments the church will cast. He asks, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? We are supposed to be fulfilling our God-given potential as the body of Christ. Jesus is not satisfied with where his body, the church, is at. We certainly shouldn't be either. It is no wonder Christians in Corinth and Christians now are really uncomfortable with the church being the defining relational network through which a person is shaped. Churches are often known for their dysfunction. The source of the dysfunction is not generally sins of commission. The problem, the problem is the sins of omission. Many people have un some understandable concerns about a church playing a really significant role in their personal identity. These reservations are rooted in firsthand experience with churches that are operating like the world. A church that fails to show the proactive love and grace God expects can't shape the people in its midst like it should. The final two questions Paul asks get to the heart of the matter. The lawsuits in the Corinthian church are just a symptom of a deeper disease in the church. An argument can be made that the specifics of what is being said in these verses often can't be applied in our modern world. Paul has written that if believers have a financial issue with each other, it should be decided in the church. They shouldn't go to the outside courts there are times this specific situation does arise in churches today. In many of these situations, the financial issue couldn't be resolved within the church, even if all the parties with a stake in the matter were willing. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I went to this retreat camp type thing, and I, I met a high school kid there, and he had had this really traumatic situation where he was driving a car through his church's parking lot and he ran over another kid. The kid survived but had pretty significant injuries. And so the situation was that this kid's parents, the kid who was driving the car, they were being sued by another family in the church. Well, the reason they had to sue them is because they were actually suing their insurance company. 
The insurance company wasn't going to cooperate with the leadership of the church or anybody else in the church saying, well, we think this is what's fair. We think you as the insurance company, you know, should pay $500,000 or whatever the case might be for this kid's injuries. And so it, it had to go through the court system. In a lot of situations, that may be the case. And in this particular situation, both of the families involved were able to stay in relationships, stay in community with each other through these legal proceedings. If these verses were only about lawsuits, we could mostly dismiss them. They aren't, though. The final two questions Paul asks are key. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? When I think about answering these questions myself, I quickly have answers. It's not fair. It's not fair to suffer wrong or be defrauded. I deserve better. I deserve better. My reflexive responses are not wrong in the same way telling a lie is wrong. They do indicate my heart has been shaped by the world, not by Jesus Christ. When I am mistreated by a fellow Christian, I may not deserve it. Focusing on how I have been harmed ignores that I haven't received what I deserve from God. I deserve the wrath of the Lord. Instead of wrath, I received the grace of Jesus Christ. Christians are supposed to show the grace that made it possible for us to be a part of the church in the first place, Jesus' body, to one another proactively. Failure to show grace is a sin of omission. We can technically be in the right from the world's viewpoint and still act wrongly from God's perspective. The grace we've been shown is the standard for how we are supposed to behave towards others. Showing grace requires sacrifice. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded, Paul asks. Being in a church is expensive. The money that gets put in the offering plate is nothing compared to the cost we are supposed to incur for one another. When we are sinned against by others in the church, which will certainly happen, it, it will certainly happen. We are supposed to respond with love and grace. Grace entails forgiveness. It also entails caring enough about each other to speak the truth to one another in love. We are shaping each other. The question is, are we shaping each other in God's image 
are in the image of the world. The level of appeal we feel about the church being the primary relational community through which we are shaped will depend on the extent to which the church is living up to its calling. Many people don't want to prioritize the church because the church fails to be what it is called to be. It fails to be life-giving. It does not shape in healthy ways. When that is the case, it is a tragedy. We all have a role in making the church what Jesus has made it possible for it to be. We are called to be Christ to one another. The church is so often guilty of failing in this task. We focus on the sins of commission to the exclusion of the sins of omission. The church's negligence is unacceptable. Thankfully, where we fall short, Jesus does not. The church ultimately gets its life from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. The potential to be the church God desires has not been lost. Our progress will always be faltering. But Jesus responds to our failures both individually and corporately, with grace. He suffers wrong. He allows himself to be defrauded by us. His willingness to respond to our failures with love gives us hope moving forward that we can do the same for others. In doing so, the church becomes a redemptive community that we will want to find our identity in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, each of us is a part of a lot of different networks of relationships. And for many of us, those networks have been hurtful in the past. We have come from families that have hurt us. We have been in school situations or, or work situations in which we have, were un unappreciated. We've been in churches that felt toxic to us at times. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would be with this church, with Byfield Parish, that we would be a redemptive community that exemplifies the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. That we would love one another well. I pray for any, any past issues that are carrying over in, into the future in this church, Lord. I pray that where there is acrimony or broken relationships, there would be healing, Lord that you would make that possible for us, that our willingness would be to forgive one another. And I pray that that forgiveness would continue into the future as we continue to, to fail one another in different ways, whether, whether intentionally or unintentionally, Lord. We thank you and we praise you for the mercy and grace you have shown us and for allowing us to be a part 
of the body of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.